So last week we began studying the book of 2 Samuel. You know, one of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is take a, a books of the Bible, a whole book, and we study right through it. You know, we'll go through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And uh, for the last couple of months, we've been doing a study titled A Heart for God, in which we're looking at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We took a, took a break from that uh, for a couple weeks there in between the two books, but last week we picked it up and we continued uh, starting in 2 Samuel. Today, like I said, we're going to be looking at a big chunk. It's going to be about three chapters. And we're not going to be doing big sections like this every week, just so you know. But the reason we're doing it this week is because these three chapters together, they, they really tell one story that needs to be told together. And, uh, and there's a really a common thread that you're going to see come out of this. And that common thread is really one of the most radical countercultural principles that the Bible teaches. And it isn't just countercultural in our day and age, but it was countercultural even thousands of years ago at David's time. And the reason it's so universally countercultural is because it is completely unnatural. It, it goes completely against all the natural tendencies of the human heart, all of our natural desires. And that principle is Loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. That's the title of today's message also. So let's begin by looking at our text. We're going to start out in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 4 where we read this. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now come down with me to verse 8, and we read this. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manahim or Mahanaim, I always pronounce it wrong, Mahanaim, and he made him king over all Israel. So here's the setting for our story. About 15 years before this, through Samuel the prophet, God had called and anointed David to be the king of Israel. Now David has waited patiently over the course of all these years. He's waited patiently for that promise to be fulfilled. He has endured years of trials and testings in the process. But now uh, Saul, the previous king of Israel, he's passed away. He's off the scene. And it seems that it is now time for David to finally take his rightful place on the throne of Israel as king over the nation. And as David returns from exile... That's where we saw him at the end of 1 Samuel. He was in exile in the land of the Philistines. David returns from exile and he's immediately welcomed and recognized as king by the tribe of Judah, which is the southernmost tribe. He would have been coming from the south. He comes up. First place he arrives is Judah. And Judah takes him. They receive him. They say, yes, David is king over Israel. But before David can get any further in, you know, his tour of Israel, you might call it. Before he can get any further, this man Abner, who is the previous king, Saul, he's Saul's general, military commander. He makes this bold political power play and he inserts his own man, Ishbosheth, as king over Israel. Ishbosheth is kind of an obscure descendant of Saul. He's one of Saul's sons, but it seems that he was an illegitimate son. Uh, by doing this, though, what, what he's doing, what Abner is doing is he's blocking David from taking the throne of Israel. And as a result, a situation is created now in which Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Judah in the south, which is ruled by David, and Israel, the rest of Israel, in the north and the east, which is ruled by Ishbosheth, but ultimately ruled by Abner. Because you see, it's going to become very clear in this section that even though Ishbosheth is technically king, Abner's the guy who's really 
in charge. He's really running the show. Ishbosheth's basically a figurehead. He's kind of a puppet. But to Abner, the military commander, he's the guy who's really calling the shots in the kingdom of Israel. But just try to put yourself in David's shoes for a second. He's waited all these years. He's had this promise from God. He's been through all these trials up until this point, and now the time finally comes when he's about to step into this thing, which, which is rightfully his, according to God's promise, and this guy just comes in and steals it right out from under him, just comes in and, and uh, takes it. How would you feel if somebody did that to you? Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Maybe at work you've been in a similar situation. You, you'd probably be pretty upset. Well, that's where we pick up our story here in verse 12 of chapter 2. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now, this is important because this, this is really the setting for this whole story. Mahanaim is located in present-day Jordan, in what in Bible times is referred to as the land of Moab. That would be the land east of the Jordan River when current-day Jordan. Now, the reason why they're set up there is because the Philistines had overrun the north of Israel. That's what happened at the end of 1 Samuel. The Philistines invaded the north of Israel, and the people of Israel, many of them had to flee. And we see that many of them did flee to the land of Moab, which was kind of a historical, um, you know, partner. They lived in relative peace with the land of Moab. And so the Philistines have come in, taken over the north of Israel. A lot of people have fled the north of Israel and have gone to the land of Moab. Ishbosheth, this pretender king of Israel, has set up his throne there. And so really what's going on here is this. Abner, right, he's brought the army of Israel from Mahanaim over to Gibeon. Well, take a big guess where Gibeon's located. It's in Judah. Now, what is Abner doing bringing the army of Israel over to Judah? Well, that doesn't take a whole lot of figuring out, does it? Abner has come to Judah with an army for one purpose, to wage war against David and basically take over Judah. I mean, if it wasn't enough that he took over all of Israel, now he's trying to invade the one thing that David has, which is Judah. He's trying to take that away from him too. So verse 13, we read, And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went up and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat there, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So this means this, Judah, you know, David's kingdom, they have their own army and it's led by Joab, who is David's nephew. And these two armies meet, you know, Abner's coming to take over Judah, take it, steal it away from David. And so David's army, led by Joab, they come and they meet him here at this pool. And so starting in verse 14, I'm just going to kind of narrate it, but I do want you to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, Here's what happens. Rather than having the whole armies fight, they decide to have a contest. And they say each side is going to choose 12 men. Those men are going to fight. And whoever's side wins their side is going to win the battle. Now, this was a way of fighting battles that was practiced at this time because of the brutal nature of hand-to-hand warfare. I mean, this was what they called representative warfare, which means that it was practiced to decide battles and yet prevent the rampant loss of life and shedding of blood that was inevitable with this kind of combat. So they would say, all right, let's decide who wins this battle through representative warfare. We saw the exact same thing happening with David and Goliath, if you remember back to that story. In verses 16 and 17, what happens is that this contest erupts into a full-scale battle between the army of Judah and the army of Israel. 
But in the end, Joab and, and David's army, the army of Judah, they completely demolish the army of Israel and Abner. In verse 18, we read that Joab, here he has two brothers, Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel, he's a particularly skilled warrior. In fact, we read elsewhere that Asahel was one of David's mighty men. He had been with David for all those years through thick and thin. And in verse 19, it says that Asahel began pursuing Abner, and when they met, Abner ended up killing Asahel. So this is an important part of the story. They, they're fighting, battle's happening, and Abner, the, the commander of the army of Israel, kills Asahel, who is Joab's brother and David's good friend. Okay, so after that happens, we read in, uh, in verse 26, Joab and his brother Abishai, they start chasing after Abner. And in verse 26, we read that Abner, realizing that he's losing this battle, he asks Joab for mercy. He says, look, why should we shed more blood? Please have mercy on us. He's backed up against a wall there. And he says, let's just stop all this fighting. Now Abner, remember, Abner's the one who started this whole thing to begin with, right? If he hadn't brought the army of Israel down to Judah in the first place, they wouldn't even be having a battle. But now Abner asks for mercy, says, hey, I want a ceasefire. Let's just pack up and go home. In verse 28, Joab respects that request and he blows the trumpet, calling his men off. And each of these armies stop fighting and they pack up and go home. And in the end, the army of Israel, that's Abner's army, remember Ishbosheth, his army, they lost, we read, 600, or 360 men. But the army of Judah, David's army, they only lost 19 men. However, one of those men, again, is Joab's brother and David's good friend. That's going to come into play again later in just a minute. So this battle, what we read in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that this battle was actually the beginning of a prolonged civil war between um, Israel and Judah, the house of Saul and the house of David. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. In the next couple of verses, in verses 2 uh, down to verse 5, we're going to read that as David was living in Hebron, he began taking a lot of wives, right? I mean, here we see that he's got six children by six different wives. By the end of this chapter, he's going to pick up one more wife because, you know, why not just make it seven? So now this kind of thing was, was common practice of kings in those days. It was common for kings to uh, amass wives as a sign of their power and their wealth. Um, but here's the thing, even though it was common practice in this day, we know that God has a bigger vision and a higher calling for his people, for David and for you and I. He has a bigger vision and a higher calling for our lives than that we would simply be just like everybody else, that we would just go with the flow of culture. He has a bigger vision and a higher calling for us than that. In fact, the Mosaic law specifically forbade kings of Israel from doing this very thing. In Deuteronomy 17, we read that kings were forbidden from amassing large amounts of silver and gold, and from, they were forbidden from uh, amassing wives, for collecting wives. You know, whenever we read about polygamy in the Bible, you know, the results of it are always 
bad, right? There's never like, he had a bunch of wives and they all lived happily ever after. It's sister wives, everybody's happy, right? No, it wasn't just bad, but it was disastrous, especially in this case. And this is really, this is kind of some foreshadowing right here. Because in a few chapters from now, a few weeks from now, there's this one guy whose name is mentioned here, and he's going to become a major player in a very bad way. His name is Absalom. We read about him here in these verses. That's going to be the case with David. We're going to see that David's family life was so dysfunctional that at times it nearly ripped apart the kingdom of Israel. And again, Absalom, we're going to be talking about him a lot later, a lot, uh, later on in this book, and it's not going to be good. In verse 6, we read this. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. You see, Ishbosheth, again, he was really just a figurehead. Abner was the guy who was really in charge. And what happens here in this section, if you look at verse 7, what happens is that Abner took one of Saul's concubines, a woman named Rizpah, and kind of made her his own concubine. And, and when Ishbosheth found out about this, he called Abner in and he questioned him about it and he said, how dare you take my father's concubine? You see, the reason that's significant, by taking Saul's concubine, uh, Abner is basically stepping into Saul's shoes, right? Uh, it's a big statement. And so Ishbosheth calls him out on it. And in verse 8, we read that Abner, he doesn't like it at all that, that Ishbosheth would dare to challenge him. You see, Ishbosheth was a very weak person, which is exactly the reason why Abner had put him in power in the first place, so that he could control him, right? And so Abner says to Ishbosheth, basically says, Look, man, I made you and I can destroy you. You are nobody without me. You wouldn't even be king if I hadn't made you king. How dare you question me? You question me, I am going to destroy you. And in verse 9, Abner admits, and this is very telling for this whole story, Abner admits that he knows that God called David to be king over Israel and not Ishbosheth. He says, I know that God called, called David to be king. And the question is, well, if Abner knows that God called David to be king in the first place, then why did Abner fight against David? Why did he resist David? Why did he put Ishbosheth in power if he knew that David was the rightful king of Israel? Well, clearly it's because Abner wanted to have power. He saw an opportunity. But now as Abner sees that he's on the losing side of the civil war and with Ishbosheth now challenging him about his actions, Abner says, you know what? Maybe it's time to jump ship. Maybe it's time to bail out before this whole thing comes crashing down. And here's really what I want you to see. This guy Abner, he is not a good guy, right? He is not a good guy at all. He is an opportunist. He's looking out for himself. He's selfish. He does not care about what God wants. He doesn't care about David. He doesn't care about Ishbosheth. He doesn't care about anybody except himself. He certainly does not have the best interests of the people of Israel in mind. He doesn't have God's will in mind. He's only thinking, what will be good for me? How can I grab power when I have the chance? And so Abner, we read here in verse 12, what happens is Abner sends, this is chapter 3, verse 12, Abner sends a letter to David and says, David, I'm ready to negotiate my surrender. And he says, and I have the power to bring all of Israel under your leadership. So let's negotiate. And in verse 13, David says, okay, let's negotiate. Here's, here's what I want. Here's, here's my bargaining thing. I want you to give me my wife, Michael, back. Now, Michael was David's first wife. 
uh, you know, it's kind of a, you don't meet, meet a lot of ladies named Michael nowadays, but that was her name, and uh, he wants his wife, Michael, back. You know, and you're thinking, great, that's just what David needs, right? Another wife. Well, this wife was special for a couple reasons. One is because this was David's first wife. It, many years ago, when Saul began chasing after David to try to kill him, uh, David had to flee into the wilderness in the middle of the night, and he had to leave his family behind. And as a result, David lost his home, he lost his job, and he lost his family. He lost his wife. Michael was Saul's daughter, and so she was protected there with Saul. But, but now, David, they're, they're asking David, all right, what do you want, David? We want to negotiate a truce, a, a, a surrender, a ceasefire. And David says, all right, if you're asking what I want, here's what I want. I want my wife back. Basically, I want justice because you guys took something away from me and I want it back. It's only right that you give me my wife back who you stole from me 15 years ago. You know, maybe 10 years ago. But he says, I want my wife back. So we see at the, at the end of this section, David gets his wife back. Michael back. Now that's also important because Michael is the daughter of Saul, and so in a way, this gives David uh, a rightful claim to the throne. So in verse 20, we read this, chapter 3, verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. This man who selfishly stole the kingdom from David, what does David do? This guy shows up on his doorstep with some friends, some buddies. And what does David do? How does David receive him? He throws him a feast. They have a party. It's like they're long lost friends. He welcomes in this man who has treated him terribly. And he welcomes him with a celebration. He feeds him. He, you know, has a big party for him. This guy tried to take away from David what was rightfully his. This guy has caused the loss of life, even the loss of life of one of David's close friends. But yet David treats this man with love and respect. He shows him honor. He throws a feast for him. Wow! Does Abner deserve this? Absolutely not. No way. David is treating this man who treated him as an enemy. David is treating him as a friend. He's loving his enemy. That's what I want you to see. Verse 21. We read this. Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king and they will make a covenant with you that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Now what's going to happen in verse 22 is this. Joab shows up right after Abner leaves. Remember Joab, he's David's military commander. He's been out doing his thing and he comes back. And when Joab hears that Abner has just been at David's house, and that David fed him a meal and let him go in peace, Joab is completely scandalized by that. He can't believe it. He says, Abner came to your house, and you did what? Right? You fed him a meal? You threw a party for him? You, had, you should have taken the chance to kill him. Don't you understand? That guy is our enemy. It's because of him that you haven't been able to take your rightful God-given place as king over Israel. It's because of him that we're in the middle of this bloody civil war. Abner, come on, man. He's the guy who killed my brother. He's the guy who killed your friend, David. This man is our enemy, and you treated him like he's your long-lost buddy, right? I can't believe this. We can't trust this guy. He's a liar. He's a scoundrel. What are you thinking, David? Let's read what happens in verse 26. 
Joab came out from David's presence and he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And one thing we're going to see about this guy, Joab, is that he is at the same time David's greatest asset and his greatest liability. Maybe you have people like that. Oftentimes, you know, in a working situation, you'll have that guy who on a good day, he's your greatest asset. And on a bad day, he's your biggest liability. That's Joab. You know, Joab went behind David's back and he killed Abner. And in the following verses, David makes this public statement. He goes on record and says, this is not what I wanted. This is not me. I don't do this. Uh, And he says, I did not order this. Joab went behind my back and did this completely without my consent. And read what it says in verse uh, 31. David sent to Joab and to all the people who were with him, saying, Tear your clothes and put sackcloth on and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. David has Abner buried there in his royal city of Hebron where he lives. And he honors Abner in his death. He weeps over Abner. It says that he followed the bier. What that means is that he walked right behind the casket as they were going, which is really a place of, of he's the biggest uh, you know, person mourning. He's the greatest mourner here is what he's saying. He, he leads the people in mourning the death of Abner. We read in verse 35 that David refused to eat all day long as a sign of his mourning. In verse 38, David says of Abner, he says, a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel. A prince and a great man. Who is he talking about? You're like, wait a second, who are you talking about? Are you talking about the same Abner that I'm talking about? Are you out of your mind? That guy was a leech, man. He was an opportunist. He was not a good person. He had no concern for you, David. He was totally selfish. Yet David treats this man, who in every objective sense of the word, is David's enemy. They were at war against each other. I mean, if that doesn't make somebody your enemy, I don't know what does. David treats that man as a friend. David refused to regard Abner as an enemy. He chose instead to love him and honor him and show him kindness. And that is very surprising, really, because in a way, I think many of us would say, I can kind of sympathize with Joab, right? I mean, David refuses, though. He refuses to do that. He refuses to sympathize with Joab. He refuses to say that it's okay to take vengeance and be vindictive towards this man. David is committed to showing love to even this man who was his enemy. Now, I want to I show you chapter 4, too, because it also goes as part of this story. And then we're going to bring it all back around. So chapter 4 verse 1 we read, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Without Abner on their side, they know it's just a matter of time before everything comes crashing down. In verses 2 and 3 we meet these two men. It says that they are the captains of the army of Israel. They're captains of Ishbosheth's army. They're going to be important in just a minute. In verse 4, we're told that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet, who was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse took him up and fled as she fled in haste 
and he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. You know, Mephibosheth is going to be a major character in just a few chapters. In fact, that is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Make sure you don't miss that one. It's maybe my favorite chapter in this whole book. But the reason why Mephibosheth is brought up here is because Mephibosheth could be considered an heir to the throne of Saul. And the custom of that day was that if a new king came into power, one of the first things he would do is he'd go around and he would kill everybody who could make a claim to the throne. That way there would be no one to challenge his authority, his rightful authority. In this case, there are two men in particular that we know of, Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. If these two guys are out of the picture, then there's no one else left who can make a claim to the throne. David can step in, take over, and be completely unchallenged, especially now that he's married to Michael, the daughter of Saul, once again. So in verse 5, here's what happens. These two men from verses 1 and 2, remember those captains of Ishbosheth's army? They realize that the house of cards is coming down. It's just a matter of time before David and his army win the civil war, and they decide to be proactive, right? They're like, hey, David's going to win. We better do something to get on his good side. We better do something to be proactive and, and get on his good graces. So what they do is they sneak into Ishbosheth's room while he's sleeping, and they murder him in cold blood. And then they take Ishbosheth's head and they bring it down and they present it to David. And of course, these guys are thinking that David is going to be ecstatic about this. He's going to be super happy about this because, you know, this means that, you know, he can take his place as king over Israel. He's only got one guy left to kill, and that's Mephibosheth, right? So they go down to David and they present the head of Ishbosheth and they tell David what they did. And when David sees it, rather than being happy about it, he's absolutely horrified. And rather than rewarding these guys for what they did, David has them executed. And not only does he have them executed, but it's kind of brutal there at the end. What happens is he has their bodies publicly displayed as a sign for all to see. Now you might say, that sounds very harsh. Well, it is harsh, but David was doing this to send a message. And the message was this, nobody better lay a hand on any of Saul's descendants. David's saying, I am not going to kill Saul's descendants, and I don't want any of you to do it. In fact, I am going to protect Saul's descendants. You see, this is completely opposite of the custom of the day. He says, if anybody touches, if anybody lays a hand on any of Saul's family, they're going to have to face me, and they're going to be punished severely. And there's this very interesting statement uh, that these guys make when they come to David in verse 8. They, they present the head of Mephibosheth, to David, and they say, here is the head of Mephibosheth, verse 8, the son of Saul, your enemy. The son of Saul, your enemy. See, what these guys don't understand is that David never considered Saul his enemy. In the most objective sense, yes, Saul, Ishbosheth, Abner, all three of these men, yeah, in the most objective sense, they were technically David's enemies, but David never regarded them as such. Rather, David, over and over again, he treated these men with love and respect in spite of the ways that they treated him. You know, one of the most well-known sayings of Jesus is, love your enemies. Now, here in this section, we see David not just, you know, thinking about it, but David actually living that out. He's doing it. He is loving his enemies. So I want to ask you this morning, how do you do in regard to the people in your life who might be in this category of 
enemies. Maybe you say, oh, I don't have any enemies. I love everybody. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that all of us have these people. Even as I'm saying this, probably faces are popping into your mind uh, of people that maybe you don't consider them enemies. Maybe they consider you enemies. Maybe there are people who have hurt you in the past. Maybe there are people you have hurt and they consider you an enemy. Uh, some of them might be your fault. Some of them might not be your fault at all. But who are those people in that enemy category? And how are you doing in relating to them? Inevitably, there will be people in your life like this, right? Some of them are your fault. Some of them aren't. But the question is, how do you regard those people? How do you treat them? If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. I'd like to read a section with you. Luke chapter 6. This is uh, the teaching of Jesus here. And uh, let's look at what Jesus had to say on this topic and see if we might learn some things from it that would speak into our lives, our situations. So please read with me in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. It says this, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and give, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. No matter how many times I read that, I have to tell you, uh, it's one of those ones that sends chills up my spine because it never ceases to surprise me. I read it and I can't help but say, wow, that is lofty. That is a challenge. Give and expect nothing in return. Who does that? Who does that? None of us really do that at least I want to do that we that's the goal but how many people really do that how many people give and expect nothing in return he says love your enemies and if you do that you will be sons of the most high because he is kind and generous to the ungrateful and the evil the ungrateful and the evil when it comes to this passage, to this idea of loving your enemies, there are three big issues that I'd like to discuss with you this morning as we're getting near the end here. Number one, there's the problem of loving your enemies. If we're all honest, there's a problem with loving our enemies. Number two, the purpose of loving your enemies. And number three, the power to love your enemies. So the, prom- the problem with loving your enemies, the purpose of loving your enemies, and the power to love your enemies. First of all, the problem with loving your enemies. You know, some people read this passage, and maybe they don't say it out loud, maybe they do, but some people say, you know what, that's a nice, that's a big lofty idea, but it's not really tenable. You know that? Uh, it really breaks down in the details. Because yes, I mean, it's one thing to take the moral high ground, right, and be the better person, But think about this, if you really do this, if you really do this in every situation, where will it lead? This idea of turning the other cheek, asking to everyone, or giving to people who ask of you, aren't you just opening the door for people to use you and abuse you and trample all over you? I mean, think about this, doesn't this teaching just encourage people who are being abused to just put up with it and not stand up against wrong behavior? Doesn't this encourage people to just let other people take advantage of them and treat them poorly? 
as if the godly thing is to just not take a stand, never stand up against abuse, or, and just tolerate it? I mean, if you look at it this way, then this isn't just an untenable teaching. You might even say that this is a downright terrible teaching because it, it encourages people to put up with abuse and, and not take a stand against injustice and wrongdoing. So the question is, is Jesus basically saying that to love your enemies means to just let them do whatever they want, right? To let people hit you and rip you off and walk all over you? Some people would say, if you do that, then you're not, uh, then you, you are actually encouraging abusive behavior and you're, you're not, and he would say, if you do that, you're just allowing injustice to win. If you just forgive everybody who sins against you, aren't you then just letting them get away with it? And if they get away with it, then there's no justice and injustice will win. These are the problems with loving your enemies or at least the perceived problems. Now let's talk about the purpose of loving your enemies. I'd really like to talk about what I believe Jesus is saying because here's the thing. I think that many of those perceived problems that I just mentioned uh, about loving your enemies, I think they come from misunderstanding what Jesus is saying here. I do not believe that Jesus is telling us that we should just tolerate abuse. I don't believe that to love your enemy means to just let them do whatever they want to you. I believe that what Jesus is doing here is he's showing this remarkable balance that will be found in the life of anybody who has really come to know God. And this is the balance, and here's the balance. It's between being passionate for justice and loving mercy. Passionate for justice and loving mercy at the same time. You know, something that's important to notice here in Luke 6, if you got your Bible there, just look at the verses which precede verse 27, 24 through 26. And what is Jesus saying there? He pronounces a series of woes. Woe to you! Woe to you! Who's he talking to? He's talking to the oppressors of that day, the people who had the power and the money and who practiced injustice against the people who they were oppressing, right? In other words, just saying, woe to you, what does that tell us? Jesus cares about justice, okay? But in the very next section, immediately after that, he speaks to the crowds of people and he says, but you guys love your enemies. You know, woe to you guys, but you guys love your enemies and do good to those who mistreat you and pray for them. You know what this means? It means that Jesus cares very much about justice. And what we, what we see here in this Sermon on the Mount is this incredible balance which God has in his heart and which God wants us to have in our hearts. And that is this. He wants us to be passionate about justice, but at the same time, love kindness and leave the door open for reconciliation even with your enemies. Because the way to overcome evil is by doing good. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we read this same balance. Notice this. In Micah 6, verse 8, what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Notice that. Notice that balance there. Do justice and love kindness. The Bible makes it clear that to be a person after God's own heart is to be a person who is actively committed to justice, to speaking up for those who don't have a voice, for advocating for the weak and the mistreated, for taking a stand against evil and injustice in the world. If you don't care about justice, then you do not have a heart after God's own heart because God cares about justice. But yet, while being a person who is passionate about justice, you are also a person who loves kindness 
who loves mercy and who walks in humility. You see, Jesus says here, he says, if somebody slaps you on the face, or slaps you on the cheek, right? Now, a slap on the cheek, is that a physical assault? Is it abuse? No, no, what he's referring to, a slap on the cheek refers to an insult. And that's what Jesus is referring to, an insult. Jesus, he's talking about turning the other cheek. He's not saying that you should just let people beat on you or put up with abuse. What he's saying is if someone insults you, here's how I want you to respond, turn the other cheek. You know what that means? It means forgiving and offering an opportunity for a fresh start. Turning the other cheek means forgiving and offering the opportunity for a fresh start. And this is the heart that we see in David here in this section, isn't it? He acts in a way that is so incredibly different, so incredibly countercultural. He was full of concern for justice. Remember that? He wants his wife back. He wants justice. He, he says, you guys are going to come and try and take over my kingdom. I'm going to fight back. He cares about justice, but yet he has no concern for his own image, for his own ego. He's always ready to forgive his enemies. He's always ready to give them another chance at a relationship. That's what he does with Abner. When Abner is attacking David, David doesn't just sit back and let him beat him up. No, David goes to war. He defends his kingdom. But when Abner comes seeking mercy, there's no vindictiveness in David's heart. You know, there's, there's no guile, there's no bitterness in David's heart towards Abner. David is immediately ready and willing to reconcile him and, and to give him a new chance at a new relationship. He welcomes him as a friend. You know, when you are offended, what are your natural responses? Our natural response is usually one of three things. First of all, there's the passive response, right? The passive response is you do nothing. You, you just kind of tolerate the mistreatment. Now, some people are so afraid of change that they will not even stand up against mistreatment, kind of like a baby sitting in a dirty diaper, right? They say, yeah, this stinks, but it's warm and it's mine, right? <laughs> other people, they, they respond vindictively. So you got the passive response. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got a vindictive response. Someone strikes you, and what do you do? You strike them back. And then there's a third response, which is maybe the most common, but it's the combination of the two. You guys know all about this one, right? Outwardly, you appear completely passive, not speaking up, not rocking the boat, but inwardly, you are burning with rage, right? And God's word would tell us that none of those responses are appropriate. None of those are the right response to mistreatment and injustice. God's word would say this, rather than being outwardly passive, but inwardly burning with rage. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be outwardly, actively opposing mistreatment and injustice, but inwardly have peace and love and forgiveness in your heart. God would say, I want you to speak up. I want you to speak out against mistreatment, but I want you to do it with a heart that is free from bitterness and free from vindictiveness and full of love for that person and leaving the door open for reconciliation. You see, the response that Jesus is teaching us, the response that we see in Micah, is this response that would say, I care about justice, but I want a relationship. Loving your enemy cannot mean just letting them do whatever they want to you, right? Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you just trust them fully right away again. What it means is that there's a willingness on your part that says, I forgive you, and if you're willing to change, I want a relationship with you. In other words, don't tolerate people slapping you, but if they do, don't slap them back. Turn the other cheek. Offer the opportunity for a fresh start. 
do justice, and love kindness. And what is the ultimate purpose of this anyway? The ultimate purpose of loving your enemies, of turning the other cheek, it's to overcome evil with good. You see, if you're able to say, until you're able to say, I forgive you and I'm open to a new relationship with you, until you can forgive somebody like that, you haven't really overcome the injustice. One writer put it this way. I thought it was so vivid. He said, until you're able to forgive, your past has got you by the throat. The way to triumph over evil and to overcome it is with good. That's the way to be a true warrior. And we see that in the life of David in this section. He doesn't just sit back and let people mistreat him. He defends his kingdom. He isn't worried about defending his image or his ego. He's not vindictive. And when Abner comes and wants to reconcile, David immediately is ready to reconcile that relationship and welcome Abner, his enemy, as his new friend to start a new relationship on a new footing. So how about you? How about those people in your life who might fall into this category of enemy for whatever reason? Are you able to love them like this? To love, by definition, is to give. To love is to give. Amy Carmichael, the famous Irish missionary to India in the early 20th century, she famously said this, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. That's how God has loved us, by giving, giving of himself, giving life, giving grace, giving provision, giving love, and we are called to love others in the same way, even our enemies. Jesus said this, give expecting nothing in return, and then when you do that, you will be like the Most High, for he is generous and kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And finally, I'm going to wrap it up with this. What is the power to love this way? What is the power to love your enemies? You know, this kind of living, it completely goes against all of our natural inclinations. It's completely countercultural. How do you live this way? Well, you need the power. Where do you get the power to do this? Well, here, here's how you get the power. The power to love your enemies like this comes from understanding the gospel. You can only do it if you understand the gospel because this is the gospel message. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he says, while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When we were enemies, the message of the gospel is that when you were yet an enemy of God, God loved you and he showed that love for you in the most ultimate ways by giving his life for you. And you know how else? By adopting you, making you his own, making you his child. That's the gospel that you've been reconciled, you've been redeemed, and you've been adopted. You've been made a child of God. And here's the question, when did God do all those things? At what point? Here's when. He did all that for you when you were his enemy. And you know what that makes you? It makes you an adopted enemy. An adopted child who was at one time an enemy. And if you understand that, you understand that it's truly by grace. And when you get that, when that truth drops from your head down to your heart. It is like a stick of dynamite. It is powerful. It is the dynamic power that moves you and propels you to do what? To do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. You know, the average person doesn't think that they've ever been an enemy of God. Most of you may be even thinking like, enemy of God? That's a bit harsh, right? Uh, you know, many people would say, I'm not very religious, but I'm not an enemy of God. I mean, I'm not mad at God. I just let him do his thing and I do my thing and we're good. Others of you here, you might say, 
you know what? I was raised in a Christian family. I grew up going to church. When was I ever an enemy of God? You're like, I've been going to church since I was in nursery. When I was two years old, I received Bob the Tomato as my Lord and Savior, you know? And then, then when I was five, I figured some things out and switched over to Jesus Christ, you know? And I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. I was in youth group. When was I ever an enemy of God? But what you come to realize is that it's possible to go to church and yet hold resentment in your heart towards God because he has not done things the way that you might have wanted. It's possible to go through all the motions and not really come to the point of surrendering your whole life to God. What you realize after a while, even if you've grown up in church, is that when Jesus died, he was dying for enemies. And that includes you. He was dying for people who were killing him, who were causing his death. And then as you think about this, you realize, wait a second, on the cross, Jesus did justice and he loved kindness at the same time. In his death, he satisfied justice so that he could love me and accept me freely by his grace. And when you realize that you are an adopted enemy, it creates a fire in your heart. And you can make that fire grow, by the way, by fueling it. And you fuel it by reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel, what God has done for you, what God has done for you in Christ, how he has loved you. And that fire, that fire in your heart is the power to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God, like David did and like Jesus did. It's the power to love your enemies like David did and like Jesus did and like God did with you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the great truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for, for the dynamite that it is, the power that it is. And Lord, we pray that it would truly sink from our heads down into our hearts, Lord, and light a fire within us, a fire that, that burns and motivates us and propels us forward to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with you, God. Lord, may we be people who are passionate about what is right, passionate about justice. But Lord, may we be people who love mercy, who love showing mercy to others. And may we be people who are not concerned with our ego, Lord, but people who love you and want to walk humbly with our God. Lord, build that kind of heart in us that you have in yourself. Lord, our desire is to have a heart for God. And we see it in David. We see it in Jesus. We see it in how you've loved us, Lord. Let us have that heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.